Hey, it's the Feeling Family Podcast, a place where feelings are felt, stories are shared, and you are valid. With hosts Kylie and Sierra, you will dive deep into people's life stories and experiences facing each emotion along the way. From happiness to sadness, pain, joy, anger, hope, and everything in between, every feeling is important and we hope to prove it. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Feeling Family. Hey guys, it's Kylie and welcome back to the Feeling Family Podcast. Today, Sierra is not here with me doing the intro, but she is in the actual podcast, so don't worry. I'm going to introduce you to our guest. His name is Eric. We met him about four years ago through the Renaissance Ranch, which you're going to be hearing a little bit more about from him and hopefully in next episodes what are they future episodes that's what i'm trying to say um he is so incredibly special he has a long story all about picking up a bottle at the age of 10 and his journey through addiction ups downs ins outs all sorts of incredible journeys that he's been on um i wanted to let you know that this episode does involve a lot of talk of addiction it mentions specific substances and it talks also about suicidal thoughts and attempts so if any of these things are triggering to you please make sure that you're proceeding with caution and if you would ever like some help some extra support if you're struggling with the things that are talked about in this episode please make sure that you check out our show notes we are going to have links in there of extra help the places that you need that you can look we like we we excuse me like we've said a million different times we are not professionals in any kind of field and so we know that all this stuff can be triggering we know addiction is real we know that suicidal thoughts are real depression but we aren't here to necessarily help you however we want so badly for you to get the help that you need so we'll be providing a few things and if we don't have what's right for you, please make sure that you do some research yourself and find the help that you need. Once again, we're so, so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you have become a part of the Feeling family. We love each and every one of you. I can't believe that we actually have people that tune in and listen to us every week. Oh, it's amazing. Um, So I'm just going to let Eric do the rest of the talking and I hope you enjoy his episode. Well, it's nice to meet you, Eric. I haven't met you, but I'm excited to hear your story and just get to know you a little bit and, I don't know, have you take us on your journey. Yeah, I'm excited to be here for sure. <laughs> no, thank you so much. It's going to be good. Do you want to just introduce yourself to sure. the world? <laughs> <laughs> so, the world. Um, my name is Eric Espy. Um, I come from to Utah from North Carolina. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma and then moved to new york when i wanted to be a chef went to culinary school there oh that's cool yeah (laughs) (laughs) and um ended up staying there for 20 years um as a chef um and then in 2006 i moved to north carolina um at that point i was still a chef but i worked in retirement communities um, independent living retirement communities. So it was kind of like having a restaurant with the same customers every day. Oh, that's cool. Um, but I ran the food service department, so I wasn't actually cooking then. Um, so yeah. Um, and I guess I'm just here to talk about my recovery. I'm an alcoholic, mm-hmm. um, and have been in recovery since 2015. Um, had a couple of slips, but, uh, just kind of how I got here and, and, uh, you know what happened um and how i am now you know yeah um, perfect. so yeah. yeah so um when i look back at my childhood i was raised middle class family my father was a veterinarian um my mother was you know she was a stay-at-home mom um again i was the youngest of five children i was born when she was 24. So my dad was still going to school. So when she was 24, your mom she had, had five, five kids. kids by 24. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. So she had three, and then at 24, she had twins. Can you imagine? Oh man, that's crazy. <laughs> so oh, I'm actually born in Connecticut. 
Um, we moved to Wisconsin, lived there for a couple of years, and then moved to Oklahoma City. You've been which, all over. Which is where I was raised, Oklahoma City. Okay. Um, so a good family style, good family life, you know, no traumas or anything like that, no abuse, um, you know. A lot of times when you when you find people with addictions, you know, there's, there's kind of a background there. Mine isn't one of those, you know. Um, it's just more of a, when I look back at it, my really, you know, while I experimented with things at, a, at an early age, um, probably from as early as 10, um, my drinking and Addictions probably didn't start until I was about 18, 17, 18 in high school. So I was a state champion wrestler. Mm -hmm. awesome. um, and um, my junior year in high school, I actually um, was undefeated and lost the state championship. And so what I did then is I quit school. Oh. Because I just felt like such a failure, you know. Oh, wow. Um, and again, nobody put that on me but myself. It was just something that was in my head that I had failed. And, um, you know, not only my you know, student body, my parents, my coach, um, and I quit school. And my parents, um, that was probably the first time I'd ever seen my father drunk. Um, now, my parents drank, but very, very little. Mm -hmm. um, and I can remember coming home. Um, and my father was passed out in the bed and he was drunk because he was so distraught about you over me quitting school. school. Um, so they eventually gave me an ultimatum of going back to school and getting a job. So I got a job. I lied about my age and went to work for a road crew down in Texas painting highways. And there is where my drug addiction started. Um, I was with a bunch of guys that were in their 30s. Um, and this was their life of, you know, working on these road crews and partying. And I just stepped right into that, you know. So it's and from pretty much that point until the first time I got sober, which was in 2015, um, which is a span of 35 years. Um, there probably was not a week that went by that I wasn't loaded at some point during that week. Wow. Um, so it was, it was two marriages. I've been married three times, but um, you know, I'd been divorced twice um, and was on my third marriage when I first got into recovery. Um, I had two children with my second wife. I was in New York. Um, and at seven years of marriage, my daughter was, I think, five and my son was around two. Um, there was some infidelity and I ended up leaving because of it. Um, mm. But my wife was at that time, she used the kids against me and it was, you know, and again, the whole marriage thing. I mean, I take full responsibility of that because again, I was a heavy drinker. Um, I had anger issues. There was never any abuse or anything like that, but, I like to punch holes in walls and things like that when I got mad, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, it's, uh, so I'd left. Um, but then she said that, you know, I would never see my kids again. And so I ended up going back home. And when I went back home, we were married for another seven years, but it was a very toxic relationship at that point. And we just argued all the time and it was very unhealthy for my kids. And, one of those things where you say you're going to do it for the kids, you're doing it for the kids, but it really damaged my kids. It affects them. Yeah. Um, when I look back at it now, I mean, my son and my daughter do not get along mm -hmm. at all. Um, and it's very sad to see that. Um, and a lot of that is from the way they were raised, you know, mm -hmm. just in a household where there was constant fighting, you know. Um, so it... Uh, it was hard. And that's one of the reasons why I moved to North Carolina was to kind of get away from all that. Um, my son ended up moving with me. Um, I was here it's a little over a year. He moved down here with me. Were they young? How old? Sarah was 17. Eric was 13 when he moved here. So when we actually got divorced, it was, he was, would have been 12. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, so then in 2008, I remarried. Um, my current wife, she has three kids. Um, and the youngest, well, the middle one is the same age as Sarah. Tiffany's a year older, and then Corey's a year younger. So they were like all within one or two years apart. And uh, yeah, so in 2009, I was working for, for a retirement community, and I uh, lost my job. Um, Shelly and I were married at the time. My second wife was very jealous of the situation, and she did some things through my job in terms of calling their hotline and things like that, which I was able to prove. Oh, man. Yeah, so she was like, she filed complaints as if she was a um, niece of a resident. Wow. And um, so... And I was able to prove it because I was actually still paying her phone bill at the time. So I I was able to show them that she was the one calling the hotline. But um, after so many months, they just said, we can't keep doing this, Mm -hmm. you know, they let me go. And I understood it. I was, I mean, I was very angry over the whole situation, but um, yeah, just, um, I didn't, um, didn't handle it well. And so I'm, I've always been a heavy pot smoker, but being in healthcare, um, I had to stop smoking pot because I would be drug tested to find a job. Okay. Um, but then I started drinking very heavily, really heavily at that point. I mean, I would drink to the point of, I would fix myself a drink um, and sip on it all night long. But meanwhile, I'd had bottles hidden around the house um, to where I would you know, go to the bathroom and chug some and you know got to my garage and chug some and things like that so like hiding it yeah keep it okay oh yeah i was hiding it a lot um and so that was 2009 um that happened and i've been through a couple of jobs since that point but that's where the jobs i had um i would um leave work early and stop at the store and you know give me a couple of Mike's Heart Lemonades and stop at the liquor store and give me a bottle. And um, so the jobs I had, I always did well in them. But then it got to the point to where I started to fade in them. Mm-hmm. And so usually after a year or two, I would move on and look for another job. Um, so I never actually got fired um, except for the last job I had. Um, before I went to treatment for the first time. Um, and that was a situation of there was a new administrator with the facility I was working for. And we just didn't really see eye to eye. And he let me go. But again, me being who I am and just that fear and shame and things like that, um, I didn't tell my wife for two weeks. Oh. And I literally would get up, get dressed like I was going to work and go to the park and drink all day. Wow. Yeah. What kind of like emotions were you feeling through all of that? Most of my emotions, again, come from fear and, and shame, um, feelings of inadequacy, uh-huh. which is huge with me. And, and I still deal with that on a daily basis. Um, even now, um, it's something I work on with my therapist. Um, but it, it's something that, um, you know, I've made progress with, but definitely haven't overcome. Yeah. You know, Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a trigger for me, um, most certainly, and is a good cause of my two relapses I've had in the past seven years, you know, Um, one of them, which, so I got sober in 2015 for the first time, I was Mm -hmm. 53 years old. And what, tell us like how you got to that point. Like what led you to. So there were times, I mean, at that point, you know, I was drinking a lot, you know, I was, you know, hiding bottles all through the house. Um, I would get caught, you know, my son or my wife would find a bottle or I'd be drunk. Many times I would say, you know, I'm going to stop, but never could. Because at this point, you know, in terms of being an alcoholic, you get to that point to where even if you want to quit, you can't, mm-hmm. you know, 
it's hard for some people to understand that um, because it is a disease and it's it's a mental disease, but it's also um, the medical field has determined it's an allergy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I take that first drink, um, it it affects me to the point that I need I need more. Yeah, you know? and I get to a point to where I want to stop, but I can't. You know, and so for me it was. Um, I'd just gotten really, really drunk and my wife, you know, had had enough and, you know, said I had to do something about it. So I ended up going to detox and going to a treatment center in North Carolina. Uh, it was 28 days and it, uh, did good for me. You know, I learned a lot of things. Um, I learned about Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, 12 step, step program. Was it an inpatient program? It was. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I can remember my wife and my uh, son visiting me the first weekend I was there. And, um, that's where I, looking back, you know, I said to my wife, I said, this is the first time I've been sober for seven days and forever, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was a really, really weird feeling, you know, um, and it was all males there at the treatment center. And they practice a 12-step program. Um, and with Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, your, your first step is admitting your powers over alcohol. Um, and which I could pretty much do. You know, I knew that I couldn't drink again. Um, and had pretty much um, reserved myself to that, to know that um, for me to drink is to, to continue to drink. You know, I can't mm-hmm. stop when I want to not like a normal person that just can just have a couple of drinks and it'll be done with it. Um, so I, um, went through the treatment and got involved in AA, got a sponsor, things like that. Everything you're supposed to do. And, um, was going to meetings and step three of AA is to turn your life and will over to the care of God as you understand him. Step two is, is coming to believe in a power greater than yourself, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I, I was raised Episcopalian, but went to Sunday school and church until I was 12 years old and then never went to church again, you know, um, other than my, my children were raised Catholic because mm-hmm. my wife, my wife was Catholic. Um, but to be in the Catholic church was just more of a holiday thing or if something that was going on with my kids. Yeah. You know, never, never involved in the church. I wouldn't say I wasn't a believer in God. You know, I was more agnostic in terms of, you know, I believed there was a God. I just didn't believe in the religion. Yeah. It, you know, um, so it was hard for me to identify with a, with a power greater than myself. Um, and, and I can remember my first therapist in treatment, just telling me to look out the window and say, you know, something created all this, you know, do you believe that? And I did, um, but still just didn't know how to connect yeah. to that higher power. And it was actually after treatment. Um, now my, my stepson, Corey, he was just like me. He was an alcoholic at an early age, um, partied a lot. Um, he had gotten a DUI. Um, and his sister had actually started going to a church in Greensboro Baptist church and they invited him to go and he ended up getting saved and becoming a born again Christian. Wow. And when he got, um, saved, um, he didn't drink again. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, Which is, I mean, you know, People look to AA as, as a program of recovery, but that's not the only program of recovery as well, you know? For sure. Um, and they don't have a monopoly on the on the whole addict and, and alcohol thing, you know? It's a great program, and, and it's one that uh, I abide by and enjoy a lot. Um, but for me to look at Corey and... You know, to see how that happened, I was still skeptical of the whole thing, you know, of how can a God do all this, Mm -hmm. you know, and turn this kid's life around. 
I mean, because he went through school and he struggled in school. And if it wasn't for his mom, he probably never would have graduated high school. Uh-huh. Um, Corey is now a preacher. Wow. A Baptist tree preacher. In Are you serious? He has his own church. And it's just amazing to see what God has done in his life. That's cool. It's. Um, Do you feel like seeing him be able to recover and like turn to a higher power that he like did that give you hope in any way or like how did that affect yes you and no so you know at first it's you know i was very skeptical okay of yeah the situation you know um and in religion in general yes you know? um you know the the you know the big book talks about um in the spiritual experience um there's an appendix on it and there's a quote um, um, that talks about contempt without investigation, you know, um, and that was me because because I had contempt for the church and religion, but I hadn't really um, been involved in it or seen it firsthand. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so my wife and I actually started going to church, the same church. Um, so we really enjoyed the church we were going to. And for me, it was still. I enjoyed the church and, and was ready to start going to church. But then I'm like, for me, this church was, you know, 20 miles away. And uh -oh. we probably passed, you know, 150 Baptist churches on the way. You know, it's like, why can't we find one closer? Closer. Let's go closer. <laughs> but it was just something about the church, too. Mm -hmm. You know, um, their choir, the, the pastor there just, you know, really spoke to you. Um, and it was in June of 2015. Um, I'd actually, because um, I first got sober, it was March of 2015, um, and started going to church there. And it was after a few visits that I got saved. I became a born-again Christian. You know? Awesome. Um, so I ended up joining the church and, and, you know, becoming a part of the church. And so, you know, I was still going to meetings and going to church um, because, again, Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual program. Yeah. Um, I don't think a lot of people understand that. And even those that are coming into the program, um, you know, Bill W., who is the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, is very big on the higher power. You know, you, to to stay sober, you know, we have to have a spiritual experience and it's based on our spiritual condition on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, and... No one else can get us sober and keep us sober other than a higher power, which is God. Um, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me, Bill W., I mean, he was a very religious man. And when he wrote, the, when they were writing the book, he wanted that to be a big part of it. Well, the people that wrote the book with him pretty much said, we need to make this not about God. We need to make it about a higher power because we're going to chase a lot of people away. Yeah, kind of find what works for, and that's what it is. You know, a higher power of your understanding. Yeah, you know, works God for individuals. Your own understanding. For me, it's it's Jesus. I accepted Jesus Christ into my life, and and I'm a firm believer in that. And um, that's you know what's kept me sober, and you know these years, and even though I've had slips, I've been able to get reconnected with that and get back into that. You know. And that's where I was sober for a year and a half um, the first time. And I had a brother who had cancer, had stomach cancer, and he had beat it a couple of times and had gone into remission. And it came back in the, it was the summer of 2016. And um, it was really, really bad, you know, when it, when it came back. Um, he had had a good summer that year. I, I totally remember that, that he was actually able to do a lot of things mm -hmm. that he hadn't been able to do for a couple of years. So it was a good summer for him. And he lived in Maine. And so Brian, um, it came back and it was, like I say, it was just to the point that um, my brother and I, Butch, who lives in Texas, we went to visit him. It was October of 2016. He was in the hospital at that time. And uh, I remember going to visit him in the hospital and him just telling me, Eric, I can't do this anymore, you know, um, and which I understood he was in pain. Um, he was going through 
for him to go through chemo was every two weeks. Oh. So he'd get chemo, it would take him seven to ten days to get over that, and then three days later he'd oh, go in. back in. Yeah. And he just didn't want to do it anymore, you know. Um, and so my brother and I did some stuff around the house and and um you know, I talked to Ziggy about it, his wife, and it's funny because they both kind of knew what was going on, but they hadn't actually talked about it together. Mm-hmm. You know, she, Brian was prepared to die. Ziggy was prepared for Brian to die, um, but they were dealing with it separately. individually, separately, you know. Um, and they finally talked about it. Um, so it was Thanksgiving week of that year, 2016, that my mother called me and said, you know, don't think he's going to make it the week. That was the Monday before. And um, so I drove to North Carolina or to Maine from North Carolina. And uh, it was, it was a Monday I left. It's about a day and a half drive um, to get up there. And, you know, the whole time I was just praying that, um, you know, God would get me there in time. Yeah. Um, I was grateful that, you know, this was happening because he wasn't going to be in pain anymore. So prayers were being answered, you know, Mm -hmm. And I got there Tuesday afternoon. It was um, three or four o'clock in the afternoon, and um, was able to see him. He was at home at the time, but he was in the hospital bed. Um, and he definitely wasn't the same brother that I knew growing up or anything like that. Um, and he died 15 minutes after I got there. Wow! Wow! So again, my prayers were answered. Yeah. You know. Um, and so I was grateful, you know, I really was. And, you know, one of the things that the program teaches me is to, you know, stay connected and to reach out, you know, when you're struggling. And for me, it was, you know, I had a lot of people that were, um, cared about me and were calling me, you know, making sure I was all right. You know, my pastor, my sponsor, you know, my wife, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, so the day it actually happened, I was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was in my brother's study, um, and he was a big Disney fan. I love Goofy. And, <laughs> and so I'm there, and I find his medical marijuana. And I'm like, this would really be good right now. Oh. You know? And unfortunately, you know, even though I'm an alcoholic, um, to smoke... And, and, you know, I'd been abstinent from any type of drug for a year and a half. Yeah. Or alcohol. Um, and, you know, marijuana wasn't my issue, but just thought it would be a good idea to kind of relax and, and you know, not feel a pain at the time. Um, but uh, when I when I smoked, then I wanted to drink. Mm-hmm. So I went to the liquor store, you know. So now I'm in North Carolina or in Maine and 1500 miles away. My sister-in-law, she's, you know, struggling a little bit, you know, just trying to deal with this whole situation. And, you know, it's two days before Thanksgiving. It's actually the day before Thanksgiving now. And so I told her I was going to stay, make Thanksgiving dinner for her and her son and and his wife. Um, So we made Thanksgiving dinner. Um, But meanwhile, I continue to drink. And my mindset was I can drink and then when I go back to North Carolina, I'll, I'll stop. You'll stop. Yeah. But that didn't wow. Uh, so when you said that you found his medical marijuana and everything and you're like, okay, I want the pain to go away. And then you had the desire to drink. Did that come from any like emotions or from the addiction? Like itself, like do feelings Both. go into it? Okay. Yeah. Well, you, you know, as an alcoholic, you look for an outside source to numb the pain. Uh-huh. And for me, that was alcohol. Um, so, yeah, we, for me, I have a hard time of just dealing with emotions. Um, and while at that point I wasn't dealing with those emotions of inadequacy, it was just more um, the emotions of losing my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of wanting that pain to go away. Um, but again, for me to have one drink is, is um, I can't, you know. Um, I may think I can. That's what I was wondering. When Before you took that first drink, 
what were you like what were you thinking what was going through your mind like was it i can just take one drink or did you have the fear yeah, at that point once i once i smoked and then i wanted to get a drink then my mindset goes well i can do this and i can stop okay you know but meanwhile i'm powerless over alcohol i already know that but even though i know that i still take that drink just yeah dismiss know? that that's the insanity of the whole thing okay you know? yeah um and you know you, you find people um that have been sober for you know 30 40 years at this point you know um, i had my sister who was also an alcoholic um and she actually she tried to get me into the program when i was 18 years old because she knew at that point i was an alcoholic that it was um but she had 15 years sobriety when she relapsed oh, yeah and she died within a year oh um and she ended up it was overdose suicide not really determined but um but that's what it did to her you know even after 15 years of sobriety when i'm sober and i pick up again i start where i left off it's not like a gradual progression mm -hmm. you know so it's um it's not like i'm having one or two drinks you know when, when i started drinking alcohol in maine you know i was back to drinking close to a fifth a day you know because that's what i do yeah um, you yeah. were at yeah so but my mindset was you know i'll go back to north carolina and nobody know the difference and i'll be okay mm. you know did you hide at that time like when oh yeah you're like yeah. you're like yeah. i'm gonna do this but i'm gonna hide it and well, I'm gonna stop. i figured i could stop but okay i didn't so okay. i had to hide it um because everybody still thought i was sober at that time you know? mm -hmm. um so I, again it was a gradual progression um in terms of the pain I was feeling, um, because once you, for me, it's once I drink, you know, then it's the feelings of guilt and shame and fear, um, the dishonesty that comes with it, you know, because obviously you're lying about your life at that point. Um, the fear of being caught, um, of being found out, um, the shame of the damage you're doing, even though you know the damage you're doing, um, and it's just like i say it's it's insane it really is um the whole mindset of what happens once you take that first drink mm -hmm. um it's just like it's a whole nother person that takes over yeah you know um and it got to the point where you know you get to that point to where you really do want to stop but you can't and for me that point and, and being in that darkness led me to attempt suicide. So it was February of 2017 that I uh, parked my car in the garage, left it running, rolled down the windows. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. Didn't figure anybody would be home for a while and I was just gonna end it because I didn't want to do it anymore. You know? Yeah. Um, and that was my only solution. You know? mm -hmm. Meanwhile, there's plenty of help out there, but for me, it's just the whole guilt and shame is, is prevents me from asking for that help yeah. for well, some reason. Even I feel like yeah. after getting the help, it's not easy. It's still no. a hard yeah. process. It like is. it takes so even much if energy. Even done it yeah. before, it's, it's so bad. Too. So, um, so yeah, I, I you know I figured no one was gonna be home and, and I could just end this and then be done and make everybody happy because that's again my mindset. You know, if I die, everybody else is gonna be better off. Mm -hmm. you know? um, but my son Corey, um, for some reason, I was in the garage half an hour. I was passed out, and he came home, found me in there, and, and got to the hospital. You know, um, so I survived. Ended up in a psych ward for about a week, um, but um, got out of that and just kind of tried to start going back to meetings and things like that, and, and didn't really work for me. You know, it yeah. just I, I just wasn't ready to quit at that point. I guess you know. What kind of feelings or thoughts went through your head as like when you 
because you like you said you passed out and everything and then he took you to the hospital and everything and you were okay like you thought you were going and yeah. then you wake up you're alive what was that experience like it's like, still oh. for me it's just um uh, it's almost like damn it yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> can't even do this right you know oh. it's um but uh yeah, so I, I really struggled with that, you know, from that point forward. I ended up going to treatment again um, in Florida this time. Um, and again, it's a halfway decent program, but it was one that I went to treatment. I came home or went back to work and just kind of tried to pick up life where it was. And didn't really happen. You know, I stayed sober for a couple of months um, and was drinking again and I in the in those times I can't remember what brought on me drinking again um again it is just I think I just get these feelings of inadequacy and that I'm not good enough and that's how I handle things mm -hmm. you know instead of reaching out for help I reach out for a bottle mm -hmm. um so at that point my wife Shelly, she had had enough and she left and went to stay with her parents' house, you know. So for me, it's like, all right, well, I'll go to treatment again, you know. So I went to Vegas this time for treatment, of all places, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, flew out there, I stayed there a week and ended up coming home and just didn't want to really have any part of it. Um, came home. It was Saturday, September 30th. Um, Shelly was gone at, at the time when I got home and she came home and she was like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I'm home. And she's, I said, I'm going back to my dad's house then, you know, because she still didn't want to have any part of it because she knew I, you know, nothing had really happened. Mm -hmm. So she left. I went to the liquor store, got a bottle of vodka, and, and just chugged on that. And uh, again, I was just at that point to where, okay, I'm going to end this again, you know. Um, and actually, it had a couple of guys come over and visit, but um, didn't really do much for me because I was in that state of, you know, I'm going to end this. Because even the one guy that came over, um, I asked him to take my dog because I knew what I was going to do. He didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew what I was going to do, you know? Yeah. So he left. And so I cut the gas line on my hot water tank and let that run for a little bit and FaceTime my wife and said, at least you'll get a new house and lit a lighter and blew up my house. Oh, man. <laughs> Your mouth is open. Yeah. But that's scary. It, yeah. It was scary. Um, but again, by the grace of God, um, you know, because I had FaceTime my wife, she called 911. Um, there was a police officer there. I don't know how long I was in the house mm -hmm. um, that pulled me out. Fire marshal said if I'd been there in another 60 seconds, I would have died. Wow. Um, he said if I'd let the gas run another 60 seconds, I probably would have blown up half the block. This oh, is what he told me. Wow. Because I don't remember anything about it. The only thing I remember anything about it is the ambulance ride to the hospital and just being in so much pain. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I remember the EMT trying to pump me through a more full of morphine to ease my pain. And he couldn't get enough into me. And this poor guy and the road was pretty bumpy on the way there. So every bump we went over, I was like screaming and hollering. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I mean, I felt bad for the guy cause he's like doing the best I can. I'm doing the best I yeah. can. And, uh, so I ended up in the hospital for a month and a half. Um, but the, so that was September 30th, um, which was a Saturday night. I think it was October 1st or October 2nd. Um, my wife served me with separation papers in the hospital. Um, now a lot of this, I don't really remember, you know, um, and in the hospital. So I'm getting skin grafts. I'm getting, you know, plastic surgery. Um, I'm also being psychologically evaluated. Um, I'm on 24 hour watch, but I'm not on a psych ward because they can't medically take care of me on a psych ward. So uh -huh. I got someone sitting in my you know, next to my bed 24 hours a day. Wow. You know? 
Oh man. Um, I was in Wake Forest Hospital in North Carolina and in, in Winston-Salem and which is a teaching hospital. Um, and I can even remember the, you know, the, whoever's teaching the doctor who's teaching with bringing his students in to talk to me and evaluate me. And, um, you know, so it was, it was kind of weird because, you know, I felt like a fish in a fishbowl, you know, and, uh, so yeah, it was, um, but at that point, you know, my whole family had just had had enough, you know, she only had enough, her kids had enough. Um, Eric, my son was still, um, talking to me, you know, um, my daughter was, my mom really wasn't at that point. Um, so yeah, I got out of the hospital, um, ended up going to, from there, I went to a homeless shelter from the hospital, um, because I had nowhere else to go. Um, my son had a house. I stayed one night with him, but he didn't want me to stay anywhere. Yeah. Because he had roommates and there was fear there obviously you know what's mm-hmm. this this guy's crazy you know we don't know what he's going to do um and so i ended up going from the homeless shelter to my garage apartment at the house because it was a detached garage but it had no electricity or water so i was just basically living with camping supplies and, and things like that in the, my garage apartment you know and uh did that for about well, for a couple of weeks, and it was about three weeks, and then I broke my ankle. Don't remember how I broke my ankle. Um, my son had come to check on me, and I'm sitting on the floor of, of the apartment, and he's like, we got to go to the hospital. I'm like, I'm not going to the hospital. And he calls the EMTs. The EMTs come. I said, I'm not going to the hospital. And they're like, we can't take him you know, if he doesn't want to go. So um, he ended up along with my wife having to get a court order to get me to go to a hospital. Are you serious? Yeah. So that's, this is, again, this is the mindset I was in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I went to the hospital, I'd broken my ankle, um, ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks because I kept getting infections in it. Um, so I went from the hospital to a hotel, a long-term stay hotel, um, which isn't the best of places. But um, ended up staying there for for about four months because um, I came to Utah in April and this was December um, that I moved into there. And again, nothing really changed. I was still drinking, um, and I'd gotten some pills. Um, someone had gotten that had knew somebody that had cancer, had some pain pills, you know and offered it to me because i couldn't get any more for my ankle and and, but i didn't take them um because again as soon as i got them my first thought is i'm going to save these and when i'm ready to die again i'm going to take on and it got to the point to where man i I was running out of money um it was april 6th i had till monday to stay at the hotel and so then that was going to be my thing. I was going to take the, the bottle of pills and, and be done with it. For some reason, I said, maybe I'll try treatment again, you know. And I'd called a couple of places in North Carolina and I didn't have insurance at the time. So they weren't willing to take me. Googled um, and found a place here in Utah, Renaissance Ranch. <laughs> and called. You know, and talk to a guy. And it's funny because the guy that I spoke with, he was nine months sober. So he was pretty fresh out of recovery. And it just, I was, I think, one of his first guys he did any type of intake with, you know. But we talked for, for a long time. And um, he knew I had no money. Had an opportunity to get some insurance, but, you know, I couldn't afford it. Um, he says, well, let me talk to the owner, see what we can do. And he called me back and says, you know, can you, can you stay alive till Monday? And I said, yeah, I think I can. He says, all right, well, we're going to get your plane ticket and we're going to fly you up here. Oh, and, uh, so they actually that. bought my plane ticket That's here. So- wow. Um, so yeah, crazy stuff. Really? Yeah. What kind of emotions went through you at that time? Like when they were like, okay, we're going to. 
Except so you get me, a plane it ticket. Like, it was just, um, I mean, where I was at was just, I don't know what my emotions were in the <laughs> sense of I wasn't grateful at the time. Yeah. Know? It was just a place to go, you know, mm-hmm. for me. Somewhere to be. Somewhere to be, to continue to live because I ended up flushing the pills down the toilet, you know, after I talked to him. Um, because that's what I was going to do. I was going to go to Utah. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, so the emotions were just, you know, okay, well. I'll, just accept it. Just kind of, okay. I've got to work. So, um, so it was Monday the 9th. I flew to Utah with nothing but the clothes in my bag um, and checked into Renaissance Ranch. And um, that's where the miracle started to happen for me. It really did. It's crazy. It's, it's, you know, I've been in a couple of treatment centers, so it was nothing like the ones I'd been in. Um, they're, they call themselves the gospel center treatment center, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, LDS here in Utah, which, you know, that's my mindset is. And, you know, of course my, my <laughs> thinking of the Mormon church is, you know, the guy with five wives and, and <laughs> yep. all that, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, first, first week or so was pretty rough, just, detoxing and, and getting getting everything out of my system. Um, but then just, um, I just became willing to, to, you know, take in what they were providing, you know, in terms of therapy and, and groups and individual therapy. Um, I can remember my first week literally speaking to, I think it was five different therapists there, you know, um, and one ended up taking me on and she was just wonderful. She really was. Um, she she just, um, we definitely had a spiritual connection, mm-hmm. her and I. Now, meanwhile, and this is, again, this is just kind of how God worked in my life and really made me a believer, you know, and, and how God provides. Um, so, you know, I, I'd gone there. My ankle was broken. I was in-house for... Um, it was about two weeks and I had to go to the hospital because my pain, you know, the pain in my ankle. Well, I had an infection, you know, I had MRSA. And so they determined, the specialists there determined that they were going to have to take the plate and screws out, which I was, again, I was grateful for and was actually praying for that when I was going to the hospital because I kind of knew that was the situation. And so he comes in the room and says, we're going to need to take the plate and screws out. Uh-huh. Thank you, Jesus. You know, <laughs> but then he goes, but you still have a slight fracture and you're going to be on weight bearing for eight weeks. So he walked out of the room and I broke down crying because I knew that at the house, it wouldn't be able to keep me there because oh. have stairs you have to go up and down and I wouldn't be able to get up and down the stairs. So now as of May 15th, I'm thinking I've got nowhere to go. What year was this? This 2018. Okay. So, you know, I'm talking to the clinical director. I'm talking to the administrator there. And, you know, they're both like, and and I was grateful for the opportunity to give me up to that point. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of the way I put it to them. You know, I know you can't keep me here. I'm grateful for everything you've done. Um, They're like, isn't there anywhere, anybody you can call? And I'm like, no, there isn't. Nobody wants me at this point in my life. Nobody in North Carolina. I said, what about your mom? I said, no, said, but I'll try. Um, so I called my mom and she's like, well, don't they have shelters there in Utah you can stay at? Because oh. <laughs> she didn't want me at her house either. Um, so, I, you know, it was just, but it was a few days later that um, the one of the therapists in group um, says, you know, can I tell them what's going on? And I said, yeah, sure. He says, well, we decided we're going to keep you here. So they took an office and made it into a bedroom that was on the first floor. No way. I'm going to cry. That's so kind. Wow. And it's crazy. I mean, it's just, um, and then again, that was just God working in my life at that point, you know? And at that point, you know, I, I could feel it in my heart. I knew it. Um, and so I went from there and I went to sober living. Meanwhile, I'm in a cast and then I was in a boot. Um, 
they paid for my first month of sober living. Um, and I got a job literally three blocks away that I could walk to, um, and started working there. Uh, that was a decent job. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I mean, I remember even in house, like the owner had brought bags of, of clothes and we happened to be the same size. So I got a whole new wardrobe from this guy because he had some nice clothes, you yeah. know, polo <laughs> shirts and shorts. And, and then I was actually cleaning out underneath the um, stairs in the sober living house because um, it was, they were like, it was a fourplex and there was four guys to an apartment. It was upstairs, downstairs. And under the stairs, there was a storage area. I was cleaning out of there and found two bags of clothes that all fit me. They were just perfect. Yeah. Wow. You're like, okay. Now I got a wardrobe. Nice. You know? <laughs> um, and so now I'm doing IOP, going through treatment. Um, I haven't spoken to my wife other than financial stuff with the house and insurance and things like that. And in IOP, which is an intense outpatient therapy, um, which for inpatient, you go from inpatient to outpatient, you continue therapy in groups, um, usually at night. Um, and, you know, you continue your program, um, kind of get you acclimated and get you prepared for getting out to the real world again. Yeah. Um, as a sober person, you know, I've never done that in treatment before. Um, this yes. is the first thing I just, again, at this point, I was willing to do anything because nothing else had worked for me in the past. Mm -hmm. Nothing else I had tried. I hadn't worked for me, that's for sure. Um, so there, there, a new therapist started there that was going to be the clinical director of the outpatient. And her name is Vicki. And I was her first client. And she also specializes in family therapy. So she made the suggestion of me um, possibly getting my wife to do some therapy, you know, online. Um, so while we were being in her office, Shelly would be on the computer. And I'm like, if she doesn't want anything to do with me, this ain't going to happen. And so she's like, ask her, you know. So again, taking suggestions here. So I asked her, you know, and... She wasn't willing at first, and even when she became willing, it was like, well, we're not doing this to get back together. You know, I just need you to understand that. I said, I'm okay with that, because at that point I was. I said, if we don't get back together, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm at a point in my life where I'm going to be all right mm -hmm. and, and not have to do anything stupid um, like I tend to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so she agreed, and, and I can remember our first session, she was – she hadn't really processed things from the fire and the whole situation. And that first time, that first session she did, you know, and it was pretty intense. And, and we got off the computer and Vicki said, yeah, I don't know if this is going to work or not, <laughs> you know, but Shelly again was willing and she kept coming back. And then Vicki gave us some homework outside of therapy so we actually started talking and working on our marriage. And um, she worked for a company that had a national um, sales meeting every year. And this, that year it was in Las Vegas. So she said, I'm going to come to Vegas. And, and I'm on the way back to North Carolina, I'm going to stop in Utah for a couple of days. So she stopped in Utah for a couple of days. We spent a couple of days together. Did a few things, went to some therapy with Vicky. Um, and at that point, we decided we were going to get back together. Hmm. So we had been separated for um, a year and three months at that point, you know. Um, so I ended up going back April 19th or April 12th of 2019. So I'd been in Utah for a full year. We'd been separated for a year and a half and um, had some meetings with the kids. Everything kind of just all together mm -hmm. you know and i mean i i can remember being there i, I don't think it was a couple of weeks i was there that we're like just sitting in the living room and just amazed that we're there and it was yeah. almost like nothing had happened it was really really weird um so life was good you know we've gone back together i've been sobered a year um and just you know 
started doing the deal. And, and one of the things Shelly said to me when we started therapy was, you know, what guarantees do I have that this won't happen again? And I told her at that point, I said, there are no guarantees. You know, I'm an alcoholic, um, you know, and as an alcoholic addict, there's always that chance for relapse, unfortunately, you know. Um, and I said, my chances are pretty good if, if I, you know, stay connected to God, do my dailies, you know, go to meetings, um, so on and so forth. And which I did and, and we did. And, um, but then it was, um, probably, I don't know, six months before I actually relapsed that things just kind of, I don't know, it, it just, just wasn't feeling right. Started having those feelings of inadequacy and, and just not good enough type of feelings, you know, I know what I'm supposed to do and I just don't do it. And I was actually, it was um, in July of last year, um, we had, uh, a guy from church had asked us if we could um, rent our garage apartment to a guy who was struggling, um, who also was an alcoholic. Um, So we ended up moving in and, you know, we'd set some boundaries with him um, in terms of drinking and things like that, that if he started drinking again, he would have to move out. And it was October, so he'd been there about three months that his sister died and he started drinking again. And um, so at that point, it's like, you know, you got to do something. You're going to have to move out or get some help. And But he just wasn't willing to get help. And he had ended up in jail a couple times and kept letting him kind of stay at the apartment for a night and trying to help him out. So that's where I start getting those feelings of, failure and you know, just not being good enough and adequacy the guy showed up at my door on a tuesday night i was actually on my way to a meeting when he showed up had walked there from the jail um and you know it was, it was a cold night and he's like you know i got nowhere to go can i just stay here for one night and i said you can but you got to get help and he says okay but then he's like putting you know stipulations on it. Well, I got to be able to smoke. And is it a religious program? And, you know, I'm like, I'm going to try and find you somewhere, but you're going to have to go no matter what it is, you know? Um, so I worked on it and ended up the next day through the church, was able to find him a place to go and took him there. I was, I got off work, took him there. Um, and it was three o'clock in the afternoon. Shelly was still at her parents' house, and I was going to go stop by there. And I dropped him off, stopped by the gas station, and said, I could probably use something right now. So I bought me a Mike's Heart Lemonade, you know. And um, it was just one of those things that, you know, meanwhile, I've been going to meetings. I've got a sponsor. Um, You know, the first thing we were – taught to do or suggested to do is to call somebody mm-hmm. and I didn't you know and again I didn't why because that selfishness and self-centeredness kicks in and it's like I don't want to be talked out of this you know and uh, it's also that thought well I can just do this and I just need this relief right now you know and then we'll worry about tomorrow well again it didn't happen yeah you know? Tomorrow was like I could use some more relief and more relief. And, and yeah, you know, um, again, within a few days, I'm, you know, drinking while working because I'm working from home now. So, yeah, I mean, my wife suspected it. She just didn't really want to believe it, I don't think, mm-hmm. you know. And it was um, the day after Thanksgiving. Um, I have a truck with side pockets in it where I used to keep my alcohol in. Um, and... For some reason, I don't know, that morning um, I decided I was going to put it in the garage. And now Shelly's home, and I know she can see out the windows and stuff. Um, so I had it in a cooler in the garage, and, and obviously she'd seen me do it. Um, and when she went out to her car, she looked and she found it. and She brought the bottle in and says, you need to get out, you know. So... Um, yeah, which I was devastated at that point. And so I'd been drinking for about a month at this point. And uh, I was going to go to a hotel and I asked her if I could just stay in the garage, in the, the apartment upstairs because obviously 
the guy wasn't there, but it was, you know, I had all the stuff in there. So I stayed there the weekend and, and that Monday I actually went to the liquor store and I bought a half gallon of vodka, but 10 shots of fireball and drank it all in one day. Oh my. Yeah. Oh, wow. So while I wasn't intentionally trying to kill myself, I was definitely, you know, looking back on it, that was a suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, I talked to the ranch um and they said yeah come back you know when can you get here can you get here monday you know you gotta fly and i'm like well probably need to drive because i don't know you know what's going to happen with my marriage um and gonna need a vehicle if, if i'm not coming back to north carolina so i went and did a load of laundry and i went and got my oil changed in my truck and i went to the liquor store and got a fifth of vodka and started heading to utah because I couldn't detox while driving, so I had to have the vodka just to be able to to maintain. Yeah, made it here, um, and uh, again by the grace of God, and that's I can't do any of this without giving glory to God, um, because He's definitely the one that's got me sober, kept me sober, and keeps pulling me out of the darkness. Mm -hmm. You know, so I've been here since December third. Um, started the program over. I've gotten a sponsor, went through in-house for 60 days, currently in sober living. You know, just like we start when we, when we pick up again, we, we pick up where we left off. I've kind of done that with my recovery, um, because I learned recovery in Utah. I was practicing good recovery in North Carolina, so I know what to do. So right now I'm just doing that. I mean, I go to groups four nights a week. I go to seven meetings um, on the weekends, usually. Wow. Um, I'm just trying to help guys out that are, are also going through the same things I am um, and just trying to be that helping hand um, and uh, staying connected to God and just getting refocused on that and, and um, expanding my spiritual experience with him, um, which has is, is definitely been happening. And... You know, I look back on things and God has always provided for me exactly what I need when I needed it. Nothing more, nothing less, you know. Well, I would always like more. Mm. Um, it's amazing how good life is for me when I turn my will over to him instead of trying to live by my own will. You know? Yeah. Um, and even now I struggle, you know, I struggle with my relationship with Shelly. Um, and while we've talked a few times, it's just been on, on, you know, other matters in our relationship. Um, and, you know, I don't think she has any expectations of us getting back together again. I mean, her, her fear is, how do I know it's not going to happen again? Yeah. You know? And I can understand that, um, and have to respect that, but it still hurts and I still want to, you know, try and work on my marriage if I can. I haven't mm -hmm. given up yet. Um, and, you know, have other options if it doesn't happen, you know, but here, um, there's connection with guys I went through recovery, you know, we call ourselves a brotherhood and we are, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's guys that I went through recovery, you know, four years ago now that, um, are still good friends of mine now, you know, and it's funny, there's probably a group of five of us. And we were at a meeting last week, and um, so I'm pretty much new in recovery again. Yeah. Now. I'm four months sober. One guy picked up a two-year chip. One guy picked up a three-year chip. One guy picked up a four-year chip. So we've all had your own guy, journeys. We've all had little relapses. Um, but because of that tightness, I think, and just – the focus and, and, you know, has helped us come back. Yeah. You know, um, and, and that's the important thing for me and, and even for guys that, that I try and help. And that's where my experience hopefully can help others as well. Um, you know, we get sober, uh, we make mistakes. Um, I've learned that my God is a forgiving God, not a punishing God, mm -hmm. you know, and that one up that if you seek him and, and again turn your will over to him, 
He'll provide for you, you know, and what you need, you know, nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. And right now I'm, I'm happy, you know, yeah, I'm in recovery. So I can't be that happy, but, um, my job from North Carolina, I was able to move to Utah and still continue to work from home. Oh, that's nice. Um, so that was a blessing, you know. Um, and so even now when I get done, um, which would be probably about August with outpatient because I'm doing that again as well. Yeah. Um, it's um, I have options. I don't know where I'll end up, whether it'll be back in North Carolina, um, will I stay here or will I go somewhere else? Yeah. Know? Um, it's just, um, I know God has a plan. Um, don't know what that plan is yet for me. Um, but the biggest thing I learned the last time I was here to have patience and wait on God and to know that, um, you know, he does have a plan and to have faith and trust in him that he'll provide, um, when he's ready, when he thinks I'm ready, you know? Um, and, uh, well, for me, it's, you know, learning that patience was very difficult. And even now, it's you want things to happen today. Yeah. Um, it's just, um, it's amazing what you what can happen when you just let it go and, and live today for today, stay sober today, um, and worry about tomorrow when I wake up tomorrow. And by the grace of God, I wake up sober tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So. Sounds like you are just very faithful, and I love that. It's incredible, and I'm grateful that you came on and shared all this. There's a lot to it. I think your story definitely is going to help people, and I'm really glad that you were willing and wanted to come on and share it with us. It even it even like touched me in such a way. Like I don't know your situation (laughs) in that way. Like I've never been in your situation. I. Don't go to recovery. Like, I'm not one of those people that you were talking about that, like, you're all in a room going through the same kind of things. But whether it's those in the AA meetings or if it's somebody listening at home or us, like, I think everybody can be touched or feel something from hearing your story. That would be my hope, too, that people that, you know, maybe have an addict or alcoholic in their families or know someone to have a little better understanding of what goes through my brain because what goes through my brain goes through most everybody else's brain in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know? It's very similar. Um, and some people have a difficult time understanding that it is a disease yeah, um, and it is a mental illness per se, um, but it is one, um, you know, through different avenues, whether it's through church or the steps of AA or other programs um, that can be overcome. Um, And, you know, medical doctors play a part in it. Psychiatrists play a part in it as well, because sometimes we have other issues other than just the issues that bring us to drink and and use. Yeah. Um, So there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with having to take medication and things like that, too. Um, I mean, I take a medication that is supposed to relieve my cravings for alcohol. Oh, really? Yeah. So, there, I mean, there are medications out there. Wow. Um, but I also can't just rely on that either. Yeah. It's not going to work, you know. It's um, a whole process. You need a, you need a program. Um, you need a connection with others that are going through the same thing. Well, that. Thank you so much again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you did so good. Thank you. Yeah, we yeah. appreciate we it. it. Yeah. And we thank you all those who were listening, and hopefully you were able to feel touched by Eric's story. I definitely was, and mm-hmm. learned a lot. So we're grateful for him and grateful for you. Yeah. So. Amen. <laughs> so thank you. We'll see you next week.